Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast, Snail by Snail, brought to you by Slow Food Portland. Stoneboat Farm is a sustainable horse-powered farm just outside of Portland. Together, brothers Jesse and Aaron are revitalizing the soil as they transition what was once a conventional nursery to a thriving organic farm. I spoke with Jesse on the farm on a Tuesday night as eager eaters gathered to pick up their CSA boxes and raw milk. I'm Antonella and this is Snail by Snail. So I like to start interviews with the question, what role did food play in your childhood or early life? Yeah, so I think about, when when you say that, I think about the gardens that my mom had. My brother and I lived in Indiana when we were little kids and up until I was 10 and he was 12 or so. That's more or less when we moved to Oregon. Um, But all of the houses that I think back on in Indiana, we had great gardens and so my mom would take us out there to play and we were always pretty familiar with and in contact with fresh vegetables as kids. So that was probably where that started. Um, And we were very lucky also to have a mom who got food from food co-ops, took us around to um, places to pick fruit and berries and things like that in Indiana. And, you know, that sort of outdoors style life and whatnot. Um, Then also she cooked really well. She had um, fresh food. I feel like our, you know, our grandparents, in our grandparents' generation, there was a lot of um, convincing of everybody, including my grandparents on both sides, that food should come in cans and should be processed. And then our parents' generation had the opportunity to sort of flip that. You know, they're their way of looking at food was in the direction towards what um, the way that I think uh, Aaron and I view food, which is all about the, yeah, the food co-op idea, the getting things, you know, starting with really fresh ingredients, Mm -hmm. using local delicious food and things like that. So our our mom had that uh, that philosophy since we were kids. So I'd say that that's a big part of where that came from. And did you know then, like when you were growing up and playing in the garden, that you'd eventually have your own farm? Or did that idea develop much later? It was definitely much later. Um, I'd say around five to six years before we started the farm is when Aaron and I first started um, planning the farm, talking about the farm, going around and doing visits to farms in Oregon. He lived in upstate New York. for several years before we started the farm and he worked on draft horse farms um several of them there as a volunteer mostly and I went over there and he he was running a catering company at the same time and so I would go over there and work for the catering company and pay for my plane ticket by doing that and then just go around with them and volunteer at those farms Mm -hmm. um that was maybe when it first started getting more serious I was already working with Adelante Mujeres as a as a AmeriCorps Mm intern at that point so I was getting my hands into their incubator farm project and I had done some volunteering on farms with gardening programs nonprofits, and things I, I studied nonprofit um, management as part of my international studies degree so 
I was looking at it in that way. You know, I had kind of got into the nonprofit side of farmy stuff, had done it for fun. And then, you know, Aaron and I both, I mean, it was kind of coincidental at that point that we had both gotten involved in farming. I think, I think that there were those roots of having mm. been raised in that way of caring about food that that's why it appealed to both of us. But it was kind of independently that we both had, you know, different farm and food influence things. I was doing a lot of serving to make money and he was doing a lot of cooking to make money as well. We're very involved in restaurant communities as well. So all of those things together got us talking about and thinking about, hey, let's, uh, when we can put together all the resources we have in the world, like, why don't we just do it all, all in one place and make this, make a farm happen. And so, yeah, like I said, we went and did a ton of scouting and, and talking to other farmers and getting ideas and taking a lot of notes and writing business plans that probably look nothing like what we're actually doing. And a lot of, a lot of thought went into it before we did, but yeah, like I said, it was probably five years or so before the farm actually started that we started the whole planning and adventuring process. And what do you think was the why behind it? Cause I mean, starting a farm is not easy work. Like it's physically intensive. You're mm. relying on tons of variables that you have absolutely no control over being a young farmer in an industrial food scene. Like there's lots of things that would say dedicating your life to feeding people and growing really good vegetables is yes, a noble cause, but maybe not the greatest business venture. Right. So <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> feels like there has to be something really nitty gritty in the bones even before that choice seems. Yeah. I think it is. It is definitely something. I look to my dad's side of the family really a lot for those types of uh, characteristics. If you're asking where does that grit come from, I'd say my grandfather was a, a rare person in his family, but it seems like his characteristics have persisted through his sons and then now um, my brother and I, uh, just that sort of perseverance, like, wanting to do something because it is very hard and challenging. Mm. I mean, he, he started off with, he was, he was a real rags to riches guy, um, started off with about nothing and ended up being running the whole Deschutes National Forest, like as the head ranger, and then doing, investing in Bend and things like that, buying properties and stuff, and really ended up being a pretty, pretty influential and amazing person. Mm. Um, and I think that my dad, my, my dad is a cancer doctor, for similar reasons, you know, he loves the work. He's never done medicine because it's a profitable thing. You know, he most of the most of my life, my dad's lived in small condos and <laughs> uh, you know, messy little condos, and 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 been completely absorbed in in cancer research. And not not a guy who is doing it for any other reason. You know, I think I think all of us get driven, get kind of drawn to accomplish something that's very challenging and then we just stick with it for our whole lives it seems to be the characteristic that's in my family and yeah you know for better or for worse I mean sometimes I look at other people's lives and I'm very uh envious of of people that don't have that particular uh you know mental tick that makes you just never give up on something that's super hard but um I, I'm really proud of us for how far we've gotten and, and, you know, despite how hard it is, the fact that we keep going. Yeah. 
And this is a transitional farm. So where you yeah. guys are set up, it's in transition. Yes. So before it was a nursery. Yes. That was conventionally farmed. Mm -hmm. Or I guess, is that called farming? Uh, yeah. Or conventionally grown or practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you guys are transitioning to not using any chemicals. So yeah. essentially being organic. Mm -hmm. um, so what does that transition entail? How long does it take? What precautions? Like what things do you have to keep in mind to successfully do that? Um, one of the things that we've been realizing about that, about the impact of the nursery that was here in the past, is that I do think that it kind of set us up to have a lot of weeds and a lot of bug problems, because I think when those things are mm -hmm. controlled with herbicides and pesticides for a long time, you kind of, you kill all the bugs. And so the first things to come back in the on the bug side, the first things to come back are the pests. You know, they're the ones that are smaller and that their populations are increased the most quickly. So we end up with some pretty bad pest problems, you know, trying to start from scratch in a place that doesn't have perennial flower plantings and strategic places. It doesn't have all the things that organic farmers would have had established over the years to it doesn't have soil that's been built. That's the other thing is since they were using synthetic fertilizers to grow the trees that they were growing here, they, the soil, though it's naturally a great soil, it's a very fertile and, and lovely mm -hmm. soil that we've got here, it hasn't been built. You know, it's it takes years to build good soil. Mm -hmm. So instead of if we had bought a farm that had been farmed organically where they put a lot of organic matter in through cover crops, where they used only natural fertilizers or did like we do with the turkeys and rotated the turkeys around for a natural form of nitrogen, things like that. If we had bought somewhere something that already had the same types of techniques that we're doing, it would be a lot easier in terms of the fertility and you know the the cover crop. If there, if it had been cover crop in the past, also with the weeds, there would be a lot better weed control than something that's just been sprayed because it's the same sort of deal. You don't really control all the different yearly weed seeds as well by, you know, targeted spraying yeah. uh, as you do by the cover crop. I mean, I mean, you, you control them for that season completely as the conventional farmer, but for the long-term solution, it does, you know, the, the cover crop is more effective. So the fact that we came into a place and we're doing these things for the first time here, it makes it very evident, you know, every day we realize many ways in which we're starting from the beginning mm -hmm. instead of picking up where someone else left off. But that's what we wanted to do. Yeah. And so we're, we're happy with that. And actually, we, we, were, we almost did buy an existing um, organic farm, and I'm really glad we ended up here instead, honestly, because of that, because our impact on the land ends up taking a place that was what this was and turning it into something like mm -hmm. what we're going to create, so... I think that's great yeah I um obviously not being a farmer but just hearing you speak it makes me think how vitalizing this other way of farming is that you're essentially taking something that's sort of like just tru trucking along and you're saying actually a whole ecosystem like a whole integrated system can exist here yeah um and you're just like moving the parts to get that conversation going instead of artificially or synthetically killing off the bugs and then letting things grow. Um, that it's almost, I don't know. I don't know what the best analogy would be for it, but it's just like putting things in motion so that it does its own thing. 
Yeah. You know, like really like letting nature do its thing. Absolutely. I think about the metaphor of of the human body mm-hmm. to the farm a lot. Yeah. Treating the whole person or the whole farm encouraging wellness versus attacking a disease and killing it and you know you're kind of just waiting for the next disease to fill its place if you do it mm-hmm. in that way so but when you it's it's kind of same deal if you were very unhealthy and you were just going to start trying to live healthy and apply all types of healthy practices to your life it would be an uphill battle <laughs> so we're in a similar that's that's kind of where our farm is you know even though just in the first year of what we've done you can see the land start to feel better and start to produce I mean it's producing beautiful vegetables it was in the first year and it is still now Um, but the in the soil tests you see organic matter going up more quickly than I mean organic matter doesn't raise very quickly at all it's a very slow process but just from farming one year our soil tests this year show that there's a little bit more and you know just like things like that I mean that's probably overly optimistic and I'm probably not even very accurate saying that, but you, you do see the land starting to feel, even just in the weed flushes, you know, in seeing, seeing all of the, all of these things want to grow in places where they weren't allowed to in the past, even though they're not what we want there. It is, it is nice to see the land come back and, and want to be mm-hmm. fertile and productive in a natural way. Yeah. Um. So, Animals play a crucial role on the farm, um, and I do really want to dive into that because there's a question I've been like really reflecting on. But um, we saw turkeys, and mm-hmm. there's of course horses. Mm-hmm. But if you can walk us through the role that they play yeah, on the farm, absolutely. So the turkeys are easier to understand. A lot of people do farming with poultry in a similar way to the way we do by rotating poultry into fields lots of times it'll just be fertility for a cover crop um but the it's surprising how much nitrogen is increased by having turkeys on a certain spot they also decrease weeds they eat a whole lot of weed seeds Mm -hmm. so they're kind of a important block we have blocks of vegetables that we rotate around the farm based on their vegetable families um so the turkeys kind of take a space of one block at a time and they rotate through the field along with our vegetable rotations and they're a building, you know, they're a block that builds the fertility instead of, you know, the veggies, they, they build, they, they give and take, but they, they take more than they give really. I mean, in terms of fertility, whereas the, the turkeys in terms of fertility and the places that we had the turkeys and planted afterwards, things have grown really well um, because of that natural form of nitrogen. And also, um, there have been less weeds. They do an incredible job. They clear everything out and they eat all those little weed seeds. They're, yeah. they're very effective in that. So I think that's a pretty common um, strategy for people to do. And that's something you see a lot nowadays with the mobile poultry houses. They work really well in, in a compatible way with vegetables. The horses are something that's less common and something that's more of a challenge to integrate into mm-hmm. a farm. Not a lot of people do it. There's not a handbook out there that really tells you everything you need to do um there are some good publications on it but um actually now i think of it there is one called the draft horse farmer's handbook and we do own it but (laughs) that doesn't mean that uh that's exactly what we do or that any one solution really tells you how you you want to do this because draft horse farming with a for vegetables is done by few enough people that 
there are no no real absolute ways in which to do it. Mm-hmm. But the horses, for us, I'd say the main th- the main thing, the main reason we have the horses is because we enjoy working with them more than working with a tractor. That's the main reason. They have more personality. They have more personality. <laughs> it makes our lives more fun. Mm-hmm. We love them, and they're a part of our family and a part of our farm. And a lot, of, you know, so that's a really big thing for us. That being said, we find as many ways as we can to make them efficient and make them the more effective way to go. And for th- certain things, weeding between rows, they're extremely the the hor- single horse drawn cultivator is very very efficient for that mm-hmm. and really nice. Um, the horses with a lot as well as a manure spreader. So we get compost in big dump truck loads, and the horses are really cool. They let us load with the tractor loader into the manure spreader, and then we drive around the farm spreading with the manure spreader um, with with the horses. They, they are great at that. That's a lot of what they did, actually, before we bought them. They were trained mm-hmm. on manure spreaders. So they're great on that. And are they adding fertility to the soil, or they're more, or they're more as workhorses, or both? We spread their. We use so we use that same manure spreader to spread their manure. That big compost pile that's right mm-hmm. next to them is mostly their manure mixed with a lot of different veggie scraps. Um, we will probably spread that mostly into fields that will be pasture. Little skeptical about using a horse manure-based compost in fields that we're going to directly grow vegetables into because of the symphylin problem. Symphylins uh, are very attracted by horse manure. Okay. And for people who might not know what a symphylin is, can you just explain yeah. that a little bit? Yeah, they're a terrible uh, pest that's particular to the Pacific Northwest. They're, they're like little centipedes, but they've only got 32 legs, I think. And they look like little grains of rice. And they they actually can go three feet down in the soil, but then when they come up to feed, what they're looking for is vegetable roots, and particularly the root hairs on vegetable roots. And when those get eaten up, vegetables just sit there in the field, transplants just sit there in the field and don't grow, and seeds just sit there and germinate and then get immediately eaten. So you get nothing out of that field when you've got a lot of symphylins. So there are, there are some fields here that we have a decent infestation, but luckily potato rotation, planting potatoes into those fields is probably the most effective organic control for them. So we're going to do a lot of that. And then there are several cover crops that also reduce their populations and um, just very careful planning and maybe a little bit more of planting multiple vegetable families more closely together than we have in the past and just being a little more careful in our rotation in, in the way that we rotate our blocks so that we're not planting things in the same place two year or two years in a row or sometimes even not until the third year where we replant with certain vegetable varieties because that's important in rotation to uh, avoid disease yeah keeping diseases in the soil so like you said there's always a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of things to k- take into consideration but those are mainly the strategies that we've got in mind now to fight the symphilins To learn more about Slow Food Portland and join our newsletter to get updates on events and new podcast episodes, visit slowfoodportland.com. I've I've often struggled. I'm pretty staunchly omnivorous. Mm-hmm. 
and I've really struggled in this conversation of like a vegan being more sustainable. And of course, I think there's tremendous benefits towards being more plant based. Yeah. But then you're out on a farm, and I think animals play such a crucial role. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also heard, for example, Dan Barber say that you couldn't have a sustainable farm without animals and without butchery. So I feel like I should just take this question to people who live and breathe it and get your opinion on it. Is that, could we live sustainably in a totally vegan world? I don't know. Or would farming even be able to thrive in those circumstances? Yeah, it sounds like a a utopian novel or something to me. Like, it it seems, it does seem that even, I don't know what a vegan farm uses. I mean, they must use a lot of alfalfa meal. It seems like it's got to be hard to get just kind of like I think it's hard to eat a vegan diet and get all everything your body needs. Again, with that same metaphor, I think it's probably pretty hard for the ground to get everything that it needs without having some sort of... I mean, plant-based composts and mushroom composts and things like that can grow vegetables. You can definitely grow vegetables without anything. I mean, you can use... I think that hydroponically grown things would be vegan, right? Yes, um, I guess so. Yeah. And then you, you know, you ask yourself, do you believe in things being grown by chemical processes and synthetic things, or, you know, because that's often what 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 you'll be. I, I guess really the bottom line is every every product has a long story behind it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it really. I think that eating certain meat is more health is more sustainable than eating certain vegetables. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're eating vegetables that come from a farm that sprays tons of pesticides and is in a you know strategically crucial area where they're just destroying the ground with unsustainable tillage and not replacing that organic matter in the soil. You know, like what what has happened in California is one of the biggest tragedies. You know, all that all that topsoil that we've lost to the vegetable to the style of vegetable farming they've been doing mm-hmm. in California for so many years. I view that as vegetable farming having a terrible impact on the planet. Yeah. So I try to not farm in that way, you know, as much as I can. We we try to farm in a way that builds topsoil. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, eating a steak or a hamburger from a cow that was raised in a place where there's you know, it's grass fed, it's not super water intensive, you know, they're not, they're not raising so many cattle in one place that they have to use a a ton of water, especially if the water is coming from a a limited source. Um, All these things factor into it. But if you're eating some of the most sustainable meat, it it can be a lot more sustainable, in my opinion, than buying things from even some of those organic farms and the the Mm -hmm. giant industrial organic farms in California. A lot of them, their practices are not things that I would look to and say, oh, hey, that's good for the planet. Yeah. So I think it really just comes down to, to me, what's most important isn't necessarily if people only eat vegetables or only eat meat or whatever. It's it's that people become informed about where food comes from. And it's a big task. It's it's hard to be an educated eater and, and it requires a lot of people, but I think it's worth it if you really care about what's going into your body and the impact that it's having on the planet. so Yeah, and I think it's such a good point that everything has a much more complex story than we perhaps give it. Eating meat has a much more complex story or just having a plant-based diet 
that the gray zone is pretty incredible when you start peeling back and seeing. Yeah. Um, and I think also as a consumer, I really struggle in that I don't always know the farmer that's producing my food. So right. getting those questions answered is sometimes difficult and and we live in the modern world, so it's hard to say, like, oh, I want to know the butcher and the farmer and the person who's um, getting the eggs or milking the cows. But there's such complex stories in everybody's styles and maybe the compromises they're willing to make or not make. Yeah. Because there's probably a level of compromise that happens in a farm and a business. Mm-hmm. Um, as idealistic and as well-guided as a venture could be. Or wants to be right, absolutely, and that's why. And and also, you never know. Like you were mentioning earlier, with the image of things, if if things really are what they're trying to seem, especially when you're buying something that's marketed in a supermarket, or even at a farmer's market, or even at CSAs, as you were mentioning now, like lots of things, uh, people know that the image of sustainability sells. That can be an up. That can be another aspect of the uphill battle for people that are really trying to do it for real, mm-hmm. <laughs> because you see the price being driven down by people that are doing it in a less sustainable way a lot, and and it's a lot cheaper to do it that way. Yeah. So. In terms have and you such have to sell an in the market. Yeah, in terms I think have such an allure, like something that says organic, local, sustainable. It's like check, check, check. Yep. But there is a much greater complex story even behind those terms. Mm -hmm. Because what is perhaps sustainable to you is not sustainable to somebody else or vice versa. Yeah. Um, Like the topsoil example in California. Like, great, it's organic. It's probably sold all over major supermarkets. But they're really ruining the soil for the long term. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that I think all need to be taken into consideration there. But yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard. So on the topic of the topsoil, is that where tillage comes in? Like being, because I know there's certain producers that will advertise as no tillage. And mm-hmm. my understanding is that that's really preserving the integrity of the soil that's built. That, like you're literally right. building an ecosystem in the soil. Exactly. But some tillage is perhaps necessary. So if you can just, like, if I was a third grader and had a question about tillage and was like, should I go no tillage? Heavy tillage, like where? It's kind of like answering a question about politics. Almost, yes. it's almost, it's almost like he who's right, the Republicans or the Democrats? Um, because people do all different types and believe that all different types of farming are more healthy for the planet, or or for the the ground that they're working with. We do uh, something in between. I don't think that tillage is the worst thing in the world if you're putting a ton of what you're taking out back into the soil. So our plan is to use as many cover crops as possible. And then you have to do a decent amount of tillage to integrate those back into the soil and then get a crop into the ground quickly. If you cut them down and let them decompose on their own, then you can wait longer to till and have it be more decomposed so that you don't have to till as much Mm -hmm. to get it in. Even people that claim to be no-till, the the term is slightly misleading because I don't know of many farms that really produce much that actually don't till ever. Okay. Really it's it's more like um and and actually in this climate in the, in the northwest it's it's almost non-existent because slugs because of slugs largely that's they're called high residue systems uh no till systems and so high residue means 
slug habitat out here, like intense slug habitat. If you were trying to grow a ton of greens in uh, a no-till system out here, y you would have a lot of trouble with slugs. Y you would also have a lot of trouble just having the right soil texture to prepare beds and things like that because it's it would just be it doesn't dry out the same way here as it does mm. regularly in, in on in different parts of the nation and so that that creates a lot of different soil issues i don't know anybody that does no-till out here mainly because of those reasons we want to experiment with more ways to do as little tillage as possible but then at the same time sometimes it's it's quite necessary mm -hmm. to till quite a bit to get a crop into the ground try to make some money <laughs> you know like you have to i love the concept of a permaculture farm that doesn't till at all but yeah like i say in the pacific northwest it's really hard to do with vegetables and make a profit mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, there there's it's another it's another thing with a whole with a whole spectrum it's it's the really intense tillage and then use of off farm like completely off farm fertilizers that really becomes a problem to me um, because you're not building the soil back up you're not cre recreating that ecosystem you're probably missing a lot of the micronutrients that happen that come out of decomposing organic matter and that are part of that very complex soil ecosystem I think that the best way to do it is to cover crop as much as possible mm -hmm. I think that that's more important than how much somebody tills is how much somebody cover crops and is cover crop something, or cover cropping, I guess it would be a verb, something that can be translated to the home garden? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Steve Solomon writes his book on gardening, growing vegetables west of the Cascades. Mm. Great book for this region. And the, what, what Solomon suggests is leaving a third of your garden just in cover crop or in like a pasture grass. Cover crop helps with weeds it helps with pests especially i mean you can get cover crops that also flower and draw in you know beneficial bugs that will eat the little pests it adds organic matter to your soil and makes it so that you have to fertilize a lot less mm -hmm. some of them are nitrogen fixing like fava beans or other legumes so there's just so many good aspects of it and i mean i'm uh, i'm definitely not a scientific a very scientific farmer the guy who mm. our, our employee is scott is an amazing very scientific-minded farmer who went to school for all of those things. I've learned it by doing it, mm -hmm. so the way that I describe things and the way that I think about things probably aren't the most, uh, you know, so I, I may well have said several things on here that are not scientifically <laughs> accurate. Um, they're just based on my experience and, and the way that I think about it. But that's kind of like what gardeners do, too. Yeah. So that might be, I, I do think that Solomon's suggestion there is a really good idea in the garden, and some of them are delicious, too. You know, you can eat some of your cover crops. Yeah. Fava beans are great yeah, that's if you end true. up letting them go, even though you're supposed to till them in when they're flowering if you really want to get them right when they're fixing nitrogen. But um, they're still good for the soil to let the, to integrate that plant matter in. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and before we tie up, um, another like home gardener question. I, I was reading part of the development of that transition has been planting, I would say probably maybe flowers and different plants that are going to repel predators and insects and pests. 
So are there any things that you would recommend to like a home gardener? Like, oh, you know, squash bugs, think of this or think of different things that would just help create more of an ecosystem because it's not just vegetables in the right. ground. It's right. much more complex. Yeah, yeah. Tract and plantings are a really good idea. Um, and there are different pests that affect different vegetables. So you want to draw in different predators for each of those pests. Mm. And those predators are attracted to different things. Yeah. So, for example, flea beetles. If you've got flea beetles and they're really messing you up one year and you think this is they're a tough one to know, but it, it's good chance that we're going to have another big flea beetle infestation like each year in the Pacific Northwest. So you can plant uh, the beer seam clover, it's called, if you can find that seed. Um, I don't know if they sell it on smaller scales or not, but that flowers in right around the time that the flea beetles are showing up to eat all of your broccoli and all of your kale. Mm -hmm. And it has, it attracts the big-eyed bug is the name of the bug that's attracted by that, which is a really good thing to attract because they eat a lot of the smaller pest bugs, but particularly they love flea beetles. So if you get that seeded in the fall so that it flowers in the spring, that's a great defense against flea beetles. Other ones are we plant cosmos, we plant chamomile, we plant anise hyssop. A lot of those ones flower and there's... I can't remember which ones are associated with which plants. We often just plant a, a group of attractant plants like that. Mm -hmm. Or we've got the perennial ones. We've got lavender and yarrow and um, another one in there too that we're going to do perennial berms in between our fields where we rotate our blocks through. So I'd say having a few perennial attractant flowers like that and a few annuals that you plant yearly, and a mix, a variety of colors. I mean, I'd say what I would do as a gardener, unless I wanted to get really scientific about it, would be to get a mix of colors and a mix of bloom times throughout the year. So things that bloom throughout the whole season that you're going to have vegetables. Yeah, the most colors blooming at the most times per year, I think, is is the, the easiest way to think about it. That's kind of how I think about it. And then I let Scott or Aaron, who both think a lot more scientifically about farming, you know, make more precise decisions about where exactly which flowers are going to be planted. I, and, and that's, again, that's, that, that also speaks, my, my imprecision on that speaks to the fact that we've only been doing this for three years and they've been three hectic years. Yeah. So <laughs> um, those, that's my best suggestion, though. Okay, that sounds good. And lastly, I wanted to talk about the collaboration with Adelante Mujeres. So mm -hmm. I talked to them last month, and I was just so inspired by how holistic they are, yeah. their respect towards sustainability, towards really um, empowering the whole person. Mm -hmm. But I know that you've had a long time collaboration with them. Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned earlier, I started out with them as a AmeriCorps volunteer. I did that for a year, and then I... Went on to doing a little bit of organizing volunteer work with them and working with them sort of on and off for a few years while I was living in Portland. And um, then I came back and when I when we started farming in Gales Creek, I was working with them directing their distributor, which buys or not. I was not I wasn't the director. I was the sales manager for it. They buy vegetables from small farmers all around this area 
which gives people who often don't speak English and often don't um, have a lot of experience with marketing a marketing stream. So it allows mm -hmm. for people to have a quarter acre, grow it, and sell it. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. Distributor, though, was something that I got really excited about when they started, and I was really happy to have been a part of it until I got too busy to <laughs> continue. Now the, the distributor is still tied to what we do here because as I transitioned out of the distributor position, I designed an internship program wherein interns come out here and work with us, they get a lot more of a production size and real farm techniques for agricultural education type of an idea. Like they learn, they learn how to grow things on a larger scale and really make veggies produce in a way that, I mean, you learn that in the gardening class as well. It's just, uh, this, this is a lot more hands-on. And, yeah. and, and I think that the people that have graduated from this internship program here have almost all gone on to continue farming in one way or another. Awesome. So it's, it's really great in that way. So now that's, that's what we still are continuing out here is the internship program. And we are planning to start an incubator out here that one of the things I think we learned from the first one is that trying to do it on a really large scale is really hard. Mm. Uh, farming incubators are a, a very difficult thing. So we're going to do it on just about um, an acre that will be kind of like what I was talking about with uh, Solomon's suggestion in a garden. It's going to be half cover crop at a time. It's going to be one acre that's going to be always half cover crop. Every three years, that half is going to switch back and forth with the other half acre that's going to be divided in half. And so there's going to be a quarter acre for two participants. So we will each have a quarter acre at a time. Mm -hmm. And we're thinking of doing just a three-year program on a quarter acre. And that those people will come out, work here. They'll pretty much treat it like their own land, but have access to buying things in bulk by getting in on purchases that we're making as the, through the farm. We're going to build some infrastructure for them. So it'll be a really great opportunity for people who have done the internship program here, taken the class. You know, like it's kind of like steps now. The, the, the agriculture program at Adelante is now pretty awesomely set up in steps. It's like you take this introductory course in which you kind of learn about what this whole movement's about and get excited about it and then you can come out and actually work on a farm and actually get some experience and see how hard it is and then <laughs> decide if you want to continue and then this transition where you can actually grow on your own for several years with and that would be part of my position at that point is I, w I would be here for technical assistance and helping mm. um and then they've also got the distributor to sell to. Yeah. And then after that, the next step is working on developing a system within Adelante Agricultura that will help people find their own farmland, which is always the hardest part, you know? <laughs> yeah, but they've um, got all the steps yeah. to be ready for that. To Very ready. To spread their wings and, and take that bigger leap. Exactly. Yeah, so when they do awesome. buy land, they, you know, they know that they want to farm. They know yes. how they will farm when they get there. They know a lot of a lot of very valuable things. So it's it's turning into an awesome program, and I'm really happy to have been a part of it as much as I have up until now and really hope that all of the aspects that we're developing now turn into what we're envisioning them to be because that, to me, like I mentioned, I'm not really that scientifically minded of a farmer. I'm a lot more socially minded of a person and a farmer, mm -hmm. and those types of impacts yeah. are the part of the farm that really comes from my drive and my 
itself and the nonprofit history with me and Adelante and that collaboration is, yeah, just something that it would be beautiful to see it really flourish into that long-term plan. I'll just mention briefly too that I, I do have another side to that that I want to develop in collaboration with a school, with a mm-hmm. college mm-hmm. that would bring Spanish students out here to work alongside the interns in Spanish and then learn Spanish through farming, like a sort of a hands-on... Like a full immersion. Immersion program. Spanish and farming. I love that. Exactly. Yeah. That's probably several years down the line, but I might try to get it, to get all those pieces in place and start that sooner because we are at the point in our farm right now where we need Mm -hmm. additional Hands. hands. And so it could, it could be really a valuable way to do that in which somebody's getting a lot out of that experience and we're getting more hands out of it too. So it's, uh, we're at a really great place for, for developing a lot of those things. Being at the beginning is always fun because of those, you know, all the th- all the great things that could happen. But And last, um, I've been asking everybody this because I think this is the big search of what good, clean, fair means to you. Good food to me is food produced by good people. People who care about what they're producing because they love the food that they're producing, because they want to eat it themselves. And they do eat it themselves, so they produce the best thing possible for themselves and for others. Not big corporations thinking about the profit that they can make off of food, regardless of the effect that it has on the people who eat it. But usually smaller scale producers, because then you're able to grow, on a small scale you're able to grow food for flavor and for interesting characteristics instead of just for shelf life or for resistance to pesticides and things like that that allow you to produce in giant quantities to treat food like a commodity and make a lot of money. I think good food is the type of food that is grown for the food itself to make the food as good as it can be. Clean food to me is a kind of a similar answer, really. It's about people who keep everything clean for the reason of caring about their customers, for the reason that they want to make sure that their product is the highest quality that it can be. So having a good, clean post-harvest handling room is really important. Oftentimes, I think the cleanest food comes from small-scale farms like mine, too, because most of the diseases or anything that you could get from food are human diseases. And so the food that passes through tons of human hands and big industrial factories and processing facilities is often the food that's exposed to the most opportunities to pass on diseases that will affect people. So I think of the way we produce food as a really clean thing and other folks who have been doing food production in traditional small-scale ways for a long time are really producing some of the cleanest stuff out there. So it sometimes seems a little ironic to me when food safety regulations and things like that create loopholes for big food industry corporations to sneak through while causing small-scale producers a lot of hassle. Fair food to me comes back around to people who are working the land. Where does your food come from is not just 
the nutrients that go into the ground and the variety of the vegetable that's grown and even it's it's definitely not just the the person who owns the company that produces the food it's it's all the people that are involved in the food going from a seed to a dinner plate every step in between it involves a lot of people and they should all be treated fairly so to me having the internship program that we have with Adelante Mujeres that allows us to pay people well for the work they do with us while they're learning to farm and getting employees who really care about what they're doing here and learn alongside us and farm alongside us while being paid a fair wage, getting access to great food. That's that's how we try to embody fairness in our business. But you look at the whole world picture and there's a whole lot of unfairness in food and I think that's one of the continuing great problems in the food production system internationally and nationally and um I wish I could, there was more I could do to change it but you know on our our little scale it's nice to employ some people and treat them right and make sure that at least the food that comes from here comes from a really fair place. Special thanks to Margie and Russell for joining me on the farm and making this interview possible.